So the question on everybody's lips is this, can we go shooting now? Yes, you can. As of today, uh, Wednesday the 13th, yes, you can go shooting. Um, obviously, as long as it's legal, you've got permission to be where you're going. Uh, you, can you can travel any distance to get there. And as long as you adhere to social distancing, all the guidelines laid out by the government on uh, washing hands and uh, all, all of that. So if you're not going with um, a member of your immediate family that lives with you, you can meet one other person and you can go about your business doing that. Uh, to be probably safe, you'd probably be better splitting hides and keeping at different ends of the field and that kind of thing. And just do as, as much as you can not to um, put yourself or anybody else in danger in this the, the virus. But um, yeah, good news. You can can go about your business that is absolutely fantastic news i think anyway tim have you been out fishing yet um no but i want you to hurry up with this <laughs> <laughs> i've just bought my rod license the fishing rod set up outside the hut there I'm, I'm off as soon as we're done i'm going down going down the river and cast the fly um just one caveat on that this is uh you are you can go shooting and fishing if you live in england not if you live in Ireland or Wales. So currently the, the rules are different for all the home nations. So you do need to check on that. And I think that also includes if you live in Scotland and want to shoot in England or live in Wales and want to shoot in can't travel through your home nation to come to the other nation. And vice versa, if you live in England, you can't travel to Scotland. Well, another great reason to be English. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But Johnny, I've actually got in I've got in front of me because there has been some confusion on social media last night. Um so John got an email clarity of the email yesterday. Can I just read the bit out that we got from our political team? So um it basically the fifty page document says um People, sorry, hang on. People may drive to an outdoor open space irrespective of distance, so long as they respect social distance guidelines whilst they're there, because this does not involve contact with people outside your household. It does. The document also says the government is updating the rules so that, as well as exercise, people can now also spend time outdoors subject to social distancing rules. Uh, you may not meet up with more than one person from outside your household and continue to buy social distancing. Um, you must also take note of shared surfaces and you know other other things, hygiene and hand hygiene and those things. So basically, what it what it's saying is, within England, you can travel as far as you want. You can meet one person out of your household, and you can do any activity. You can spend time outdoors doing illegal activity. So the way the NGOs see it is, yes, carry on. I like the way the NGO That's a nice and simple way of having it, isn't it? Yeah, it's clear. It's in, it's in the guideline. It's, it's quite clear. So, you know, that's what it says. Um, and spending time outdoors. I think it'll also, we spoke about mental health last week. I think this will do a lot of people have started to struggle with being stuck inside. And I, I think this will do people the world good to be able to just go to do their hobby. Yeah. which isn't going to affect anyone else so it's all positive even just once a week would be a um a vast improvement over uh, never 
the possibility yeah. is as good as the real thing, I think, in a lot of people's heads. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I think we've got to the the edge of people's ability now to 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 have to stay home. I think I mean I'm I'm in like WhatsApp group with a lot of friends, and this week there's been a big change. It was quite upbeat, and we we're all keeping ourselves quite cheery and everything. But this week, there, there are a few messages going out. You know, I'm ah, sick of this now. I just, I need to get out. I need to stretch my legs. I need to you know just do something different than sitting you know all being stuck at home all the time. And I think. I think it's come at a perfect timing because I, th I don't think it, I think if it hadn't come now, I think a lot of people would have struggled this week or in, in the coming weeks. So, yeah, it's, it's definitely good news to be able to get out there in a, in a more positive way. I, so I don't know how any of you have found it, but certainly down here, I've noticed over the last two weeks, a ramping up in people just not actually caring and people pushing the lines of what is acceptable anyway, just due to frustration. And there is a, there is got to be understandable because we've, Everyone has a different tolerance and limit, but the roads out there sometimes are just just like a regular day of a regular year. Um, so I think Boris came at the right time, like you said, and said, actually, everyone's kind of pushing the limit. Go and do what you need to do, but do it sensibly and go and shoot as many deer as you can because they've had too much of a break. <laughs> yeah, it's just what you uh, do with has, has anyone else sort of seen that increase in traffic the last few weeks definitely yeah, yeah. not so much the last few weeks i think it started more when the media started speculating what boris was going to say on a thursday and then obviously he pushed it back to the sunday i think at that point when the media started saying oh well, this is what might happen it's going to be relaxed a little bit that's when people sort of decided that it had already been relaxed maybe a little bit too early um so i'm glad boris kind of waited for sunday to make the announcement rather than Thursday, because I think Bank Holiday would have been yeah. absolutely crackers up here. Mm. Uh, that's Becky, by the way. Becky, would you like to introduce yourself? I'm Becky. I'm the Northern representative for the NGO Educational Trust, which is a branch of the NGO that focuses on educating different sort of areas of life. So sort of primary school children, secondary school children, urban areas, rural areas, all the sort of different areas that don't know what shooting is, what gamekeepers do, um, and all of the positive benefits that, that that comes with, really. So that's that's what I do. That's a hell of a task. Can you sort of, what do you do on a day-to-day -day basis? <laughs> Hope for the best. <laughs> <laughs> Push it to the back of my mind. <laughs> that kind of thing. Um, no, I mean, our usual jobs are sort of the country shows and things like that. So we've really been scuppered with that this year. Um, ordinarily, we'd be at things like country countryside learning days, which focus on key stage two, um, sort of initially introducing primary school children to the idea of conservation and mostly proactive conservation rather than the idea that the countryside just gets on with looking after itself. Um, which I must admit has last year was the first year that I did that and it's proven to be quite a hell of a task because um, obviously conservation is, is quite a quite a big concept for, for a primary school child. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. <laughs> How do you feed that to a primary school child? Is it a case of just relating it to, uh, can you just say cartoons aren't real? Or how do you do that? Do you just have to introduce them to wild spaces and hope that they get it? 
Yeah, mostly. I mean, a lot of the time they actually come to the conclusion themselves. So I tend to start off by, we've basically got a great big table of taxidermy, which is really good because it's quite visual for a, for a primary school age child to be able to see something and touch something and something that they see every single day, but they've maybe never acknowledged even. So it's a magpie, maybe they see a magpie all the time. And you sort of say to them, you know, what on the table do you, do you recognise? And say, oh yeah, I see that all the time, but what is it? And that's when you can really sort of go into what it is, what it does. And they say, oh, well, that's quite vicious, isn't it? And you can sort of roll on from there as to how we proactively manage magpies in order to look after the songbirds. And it all kind of rolls onto one. But if you give them the, op the opportunity to sort of come to the conclusion themselves as to how we can manage them, more often than not, they come up with the idea that actually we probably need to take out some of those animals in order to, to conserve the others. So in some situations it's it's easy and then in other situations you get somebody who's quite savvy and they start where they're trying to cause a you know cause a reaction. <laughs> um, vegan children by any chance or is that just an <laughs> urban versus rural environment? No, to be honest, the ones that start to cause the the problems that start to cause a reaction with the other kids are the ones who know about it already. So they've either got an uncle who, who goes shooting or the dad's a farmer, so he looks after the foxes and things. And rather than letting the other kids sort of gradually come to the gentle conclusion that there's too many in the country and we need to, we need to have a cull, um, they just come out and like, yeah, we kill them. <laughs> and all of the other kids sort of go, oh, no. And then you've sort of got to backtrack a little bit and say why we kill them. <laughs> um, but yeah. How do kids take it when they, presumably you go into fairly urban environments, cities, kids that probably have no idea what a magpie is, as you just said. How do they take it when you say we got to kill them? They actually take it really well. Children are a lot more logical than adults. I think yeah. adults have, can, or can already have been persuaded otherwise. Um, so they might already have this sort of stigma in the head, whereas a child doesn't. Um, so you sort of, if you get in there first, then you sort of, you're setting them up for this logical thinking. And that, I mean, that's how they come to the conclusion themselves. You know, if you sort of say to somebody, right, we've got too many foxes, they're killing all of these things. Um, you know, if they carry on eating all of these things, there's going to be none left. And then what does, you know, what does a fox eat? And they say, oh, well, it's not going to have anything to eat. So you say, right, well, what? you know, what could we do? Oh, we need to make sure it's got plenty of food. Right, so to make plenty of food, we reduce the number of foxes that are eating the food and we create a balance. We say, oh, right, well, yeah, that's a really good idea. Let's take out some of those foxes so that everything can survive. And like I said, they, they come to that conclusion themselves because it's a logical step. Um, and if you take that emotion out of it, then that all we do is logic. It's logic, it's facts, it's scientifically proven. So... So yeah, the, it's not too hard. The trouble with it is that they're very young, and so they sort of they only absorb tiny little pieces of information. So if we're not the most enjoyable thing there, they can soon go to another site and sort of think about something else. So, yeah, so they flip straight over. So if they was to go to an opposition stand who said, no, 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 everything can live perfectly happily all together foxes don't eat rabbits they don't eat birds they don't eat red listed species then they'd just say oh great 
It's exactly what I wanted to hear because foxes are really pretty. They're my favourite animal. So that's that's the main thing that we're, we're up against is false information hitting them. Do you, I, I presume, how do you help with teachers if you're going into schools or is that is that not an issue? Do you get the kids to yourself? No, the teachers are always there because obviously it's probably a matter of, of sort of law really because they're the ones with the CRB checks and things like that so they have to be present which is fine with me because it does tend to keep the kids in line. <laughs> they listen to the teachers a bit more than me. Um, but yeah, I mean, most of the schools that we have come to us are schools that want children to to acknowledge this sort of you know this side of the countryside that's so proactive so it's quite good because the teachers do tend to be on side and the teachers learn just as much as the kids do which is obviously one of the most important things as well while we're addressing the children we have to be addressing the teachers as well and making sure that they stay involved because we want them to go away and sort of reiterate what we've said because at the end of the day we could tell a child whatever we wanted but they're always going to trust the teacher and their parents a lot more than us because we're somebody completely unfamiliar to them. Um, so, so yeah, it's definitely a double whammy trying to win over the teachers at the same time, which, like I say, they're the ones who have chosen to come to us and listen to us. So it's not usually too hard a task, really. Do you take them out of schools and onto into the countryside as well as part of it? Um, yeah, so one of the one of the other groups, the Marlin groups, Nimmo, um, and Yorkshire's Marlin groups, there's lots of little ones about sort of each Marlin area. Um, so they've got a really good thing going, the Let's Learn More, um, which the NGO Educational Trust is hoping to get a lot more involved with. Um, but they do, so they raise funding, they help subsidise schools to actually come out to the Marlin and see firsthand all of the different things that they do. Um, but what, what we tend to do is just go to already organised events. So there's loads of different people there, but that does sort of encourage schools to come out of the classroom and into different environments in order for us to teach them. So forestry blocks, estates, country estates, all that kind of thing. But, but yeah, that's definitely something that the Educational Trust is working on pushing forward to sort of the more, more of the lowland ground areas as well, because there's been, there is quite a lot that's been done with the moorland. Um, and I think the lowlands kind of getting left behind at the moment. So, so that's what we want to push forward. So is there an equivalent to you in the south of England as well? Yes. So we've got Jim, who's in the south, Gerald, who's in the Midland, and then Brian, who sort of oversees everything with the Educational Trust. Um, and he's also in the Midlands, but kind of the other side of the Midlands. Midlands, obviously, a great big place. Um, <laughs> so... So we've got two. Well, obviously, everybody at the minute is kind of being made redundant um, because, like I say, our our sort of our tactic is seeing people and having people come to see us. So with social distancing and everything, it's it's been a bit of a no-no. Um, which, like I say, is why I'm trying to really get the Instagram and the NGO Educational Trust Facebook page up to up to spec with the um, with an audience so that. <laughs> we can really address people online a little bit more. Uh, what, what sort of tactics are you using on there? Are you aiming to, again, educate younger people or is it for educating adults as well? Um, so I'm going to aim more for sort of the teenage adults, um, sort of that middle generation, because they're obviously the people that are more in tune with Instagram. Um, yeah, and then obviously we're going to have to keep going out to sort of the nursing homes and things like that that we that we tend to do or the rotary clubs um women's institutes are one that i really want to to hit home to this year but obviously that's been scuppered so we'll go for next year um 
but yeah I mean there's so many different things that you can you can educate people with so if you've got somebody who loves cooking we've got recipes and you know one of the really good or one of the sort of the trends at the minute this whole vegan trend is actually because people want sustainable and ethically sourced food which there is nothing more sustainable or ethical than food that's been hunted because it's lived a completely wild life it dies very very quickly in its natural environment without the stress of going to an abattoir and it's healthier meat to eat uh, it's um it's a hell of a task isn't it? how is it funded uh, so it's funded through so like i say we are part of the ngo so the ngo contribute to us along with lots of other little organizations um and then people can just donate to us if we sort of if they see fit and it's something that they, they'd like to promote kind of thing we are a charity um so that's that's obviously mainly how it's funded um but yeah i think going forward it'd be great to get some more funding and sort of running different fundraisers in order to have a little bit a little bit more money to to do what we're doing because like you say it is an enormous task so for a very small group of people uh, as you say it's um well the, most people in the shooting world harp on about educating youngsters but to see well, to talk to someone who's actually doing it is um is fascinating it's absolutely fascinating so when you go to shows, is, is the reception much the same as schools that young people actually are just infused by the stuff that they have to go and touch a fox even though it's dead um is, is that reception still quite high solid yeah i mean it definitely draws people in um yeah i think there's lots of other ways that you can sort of i mean if you really wanted to go into sort of the teaching aspects there's so many different they always say that you need to be hitting the five sensories in order to to teach somebody effectively because not everybody learns in exactly the same mm. way um, i was always somebody who learned by doing so if i was out there doing something I'd, I'd intake that information so much quicker whereas my friends they were a lot more academic and they could listen to something and then take all of that information or they might have to you know write it down in order to take that information in so i think at the shows it's great having the visual context there but also just things like information leaflets that people can take away with them um, and then take that in their own time or like say recipe cards all that kind of thing um, it all sort of makes up that whole experience um, and one thing that I really want to push for this year as well well I keep saying this year this year is a bit of a write-off um, but next year is sort of education packs because it's all right drawing the children in but what we also need to be doing is hitting you know getting the, the information into the parents as well so that you've got that double generation sort of so the bridge. kids take something home the parents by proxy yeah. read, or have to read them it because we're told what to do by our children um but yeah, yeah that's, i think that's a great great thing you went to countryside file live as part of all this as well i presume yeah yeah so we went with the ngo stand um on both the, the north and the south um and we did sort of a lowland lowland spec we left Nimo and yeah, like I say the Yorkshire Dales group to kind of do the Marland thing and we decided to cover the the lowland aspect of things um, and again that was just a, just a chance for us to talk to the public and really see how much they know and to be honest it's quite scary how little some people do know you know you, you've got two different I mean Countryfile Live was more aimed at the sort of the adults but you have some adults coming over who think that a rookie's a crow or you know they don't know what a magpie is and really sometimes we're just stood there pointing at taxidermy and telling them what that animal is and what whether it's a predator or a prey or if it's red listed or you know some of the most basic information that you think we do know 
a lot of people in urban areas just really don't have a clue and yeah so sometimes it seems like we're not doing a great deal but it's that gateway of... is as important as um i had a great chat with a guy a little while ago and saying about stages you can't take somebody from not knowing what a crow is to wanting to kill pheasants you have to take yeah. them to to understand that a crow's a crow and a fox is a fox and maybe to start caring about that in the very slightest fact before converting them into a maybe an unconscientious killer by the end if they don't understand stages one through 15. Yeah, that, that's a really good point. I'm glad you brought Countryfile up as well because um, five years ago, four years ago, when the NGO took the decision to go to Countryfile. That was brave. Yeah, it was. It, it was. It took a lot of discussions and it actually, I mean, to start with, they said we weren't allowed to go. They didn't want us there. So that's one of the reasons why we went. Um, out of sheer pig-headedness, which is quite a genki pre-NGO thing to do. Um, but after the second, the first year, we learned a lot. We learned what we did badly, what we did wrong. And over the last four or five years, it's developed into a pretty decent stand. And the northern one's fantastic. And it is caught working. So the education stuff, the NGO, Game Conservancy, has joined us on the northern one. Um, the Game Dealers Association, the uh, Newton Rigg College, Sparshot College, bright seeds they're all on the stand yeah. so it's it is very much the industry educating the non-industry and we always put pictures on our facebook and some live feeds of stuff we're doing we had um uh adam henson cooking on our stand last year he came and cooked for venison that's cool after a butchery demo so yeah, it was really good so we put some live feed on there we actually got a fair bit of grief from i could probably name the people all in one hand uh on social media about going and i think that's so from the shooting community actually well one of them was a member three of them said they were but weren't a check away um but we can actually do that we can look and see if you are when you leave a comment on facebook by the way <laughs> so um uh, but the, the the really interesting thing like the work becky's doing i think we all of us have got to get better at telling us the work Becky's doing. And it's, it, it's you know, people, uh, the main comment was, I can't believe the NGO have spent 8,000 quid on the BBC show who don't support shooting. Well, if you're not there to educate, you can't have your voice. It's the only opportunity you're going to get to access that <laughs> audience. And if yeah. you're going to get in and, there. Yeah, it, it's so important. That, uh, Becky will know better. Becky, you'll, you'll talk to dozens of people during the week who, who genuinely, see a pigeon when they're getting on the bus and that's it and you can you know becky can tell them about the actual conservation and the good work we do which is so important getting out there is vital and one of the big criticisms people say is as organizations why aren't you telling people what we're doing why aren't you getting into the media well it's not that easy but if you can get it into over twelve thousand people across a four-day period i think that's money well spent I would agree. It's worth pound fifty a go to just have the opportunity to talk to them. No, it's less than that. Sorry, eighty p a go to talk to them. Yeah. I think that's. Um, I would agree that it's a good choice. Do you get any heat whilst you're there, Becky? Yes. So my other half here, he'll be able to tell you some of the best things that. Well, the best thing about Countryfile Live, especially, is that we do get so much grief at those shows. And all of those people, they come over, and the majority of them know what they're talking about as well, which is really nice. Because um, a lot of the time you'll, you'll get somebody on Facebook who gives you a bit of jip and they've basically just 
heard something as a rumour and they, they don't know any backstory to it. So they're, they're fairly easily sort of educated. Whereas the people that we talked about Countryfile Live, they are people who are countryside goers that, you know, they enjoy the bird watching or whatever else. Um, and they think they know everything about shooting because they watch birds. Um, so we get some really hard hitting people coming and giving us, you know, having really good, healthy debates about gamekeeping and, you know, all of the different things that involves. Um, so, yes, yeah, so well, that usually stands with the Nimmo, um, Nimmo people because we are a grouse mower up here as well. Um, so, yeah, he'll be able to tell you about some of the, some of the best conversations. <laughs> All right, uh, Albert, before you do that, can you introduce yourself, please? Uh, so, I'm Albert. Um, I am a gamekeeper on the North York Moors. Um, I do bits of grouse keeping and uh, bits of low ground keeping. So, jack of all trades, master of none. Um, Yet. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, as, as Becky said, there, I like to um, to do my part and go to the shows. Um, I think as as um, as gamekeepers now, that's really got to be part of our remit is educating the public. Um, and like Becky says, we do get some um, fairly fairly tricky questions, fairly um, fairly on the spot sort of um, debates, and it. They're, they're the people that we really need to be connecting with. So, you know, uh, one of the biggest... If they're involved and educated enough to have a good debate. Yes. Yeah, yeah. No, no, definitely. And, you know, like Becky says, we, we get the odd people that we're just sort of... We're starting from a, the grassroots blank canvas. Um, but then we have had some quite um, militant anti-shooting um, folk come over to our stands, you know, maybe sort of show a bit of an interest maybe not engage in conversation, but, you you know, they, they want to sort of come and, and, and scout out, if you like. And they want to give us hell. Yeah. <laughs> so we make it our, our job to go and sort of try and make time for them and, and listen to their views. So Have I think a that's coffee the and a chat. Yeah. So we, we, want to, we want to try and engage with that. So we, we let them sort of vent, let off a little bit of steam, you know. Can you give us an they, example of what that's like or, or what they're asking, uh, what they're saying? Basically, that... It all all tends to stem round killing. So whether it be a fox, a squirrel, um, any sort of wildlife, and a and a big thing that we we get a lot of pressure from um, is individuals coming over and accusing every single gamekeeper of bird of prey persecution. Um, so that that's that's our most tricky subject because obviously that's a it's a it's a delicate subject, um, and people do get quite you know irate and emotional about that um so to sort of try and try and spin that back round and and bring them back down to earth um can be quite difficult at times um so you've, you've just got to like you say let them let off a bit of steam let them get their points across you've got to you've got to sort of understand that they are passionate about this as well just from a, a different perspective um and then and then all we've got to do is is give them some facts back um tell them why we do what we do um, tell them about all the legal methods that we use and why they're effective and then also condone any sort of bad apples that are, are in the profession um, and and then also the the thing that we we like to discuss with them um, is um, sort of trying to try and change their perspective to, to get them to look from a from a, an on-the-ground conservationist point of view um, and I would say 99% of the time, 
we will shake hands, we'd say thank you very much. And they might not go away from there wanting to become a gamekeeper. You know, that's not what we're expecting. But what we want them to do is to, to see it from our point of view uh, and to understand um, what goes on, why we do, and, and to have a little bit of appreciation for that uh, and just to understand how important it is for conservation. Um, so like I say, 99% of the time we, we can we can be very sort of agreeable and things part on on good terms. So that's that's definitely a positive. It's they're the sort of people that we need to be talking to. There's there's a like like Tim was saying, you know, there's people that maybe don't agree with us going and doing that, but really there's no point us all sitting sitting or standing in a room um, saying how well things are going with other people that are in the shooting community. We need to be out there and we need to be justifying our cause. We need to be um, educating people and and like I say not not necessarily getting everybody to pick up a gun and start shooting but just to understand how important it is um doing the things that we do it, it's it's about dispelling the myths i think that's the main thing uh, there's so much uh, negative press put on us which is not true and there's no founding for it and it's dispelling those myths i mean i, I have numerous people come up to me at front of our live in the north on about hen areas. Um, last year was a massive success for hen areas. Uh, on, certainly on the west coast in the Boland area, there was something like 34 chicks fledged on all on driven grouse moors. So, you know, once they hear that and they can show them where to see the evidence of that, they say, well, that's not what we're hearing from the other side. And, you know, we're kind of like, concerned now of why we're being lied to about this and this isn't coming out so it's really important that we're there it's really important that we're putting the facts across and and telling people what's actually going going on and what's happening and, and why these managed areas are a real haven and a success story for a lot of birds that aren't faring so well on other conservation bodies website uh, websites on, on other conservation bodies conservation sites you know, I mean, um, you know, I'm not going to name an organisation, but their upland reserves have never hatched or um, supplied any hen harriers breeding or, or trying to nest. Where, whereas on driven grouse moors, they nest in a regular basis. So, you know, it's. it's, it's facts and figures like that that we need to get out there. That uh, you know. That I always push with the hen harrier argument is that not the argument, but the hen harrier conversation is that hen harriers are in abundance in Europe. And there's there's and no, there's no, there's no moorlands there. There's no other driven grouse moors in Europe. Yeah. Um, so it begs the question: Where do all of those hen harriers breed, and why aren't they breeding in that sort of habitat over here? And they, the answer is really simple. There is not the predator control in those habitats in this country. The only people who carry out predator control for ground nesting birds, and hen harriers are a ground nesting bird, is on a driven grouse mall. All gamekeepers, really. Well, all gamekeepers, but on a driven grouse mall. Very much more so on wild bird shoots because it's you, you need to, 365 days a year, right? Yeah. Out of interest, where do hen harriers succeed in life in other parts of the world? Mostly young woodland plantations, so meadow grounds. Their natural diet is both. Their natural diet is very much the same as a barn owl, in actual fact. So you've got voles, mice, everything that you'd find in a meadow 
meadow, like I say, young woodland plantation, but we don't... They're, they're very much originally yeah. a low ground bird. Um, and the, the fact that we're having such success on driven grouse mows is, is testament to the, 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 the control and the habitat management that we're putting in place. And really what it is, it's, it's the only suitable habitat left it's, it's not even really a suitable habitat it's the only habitat left where they can actually successfully breed and fledge um, when we look at sort of uh, intensive agriculture and um, human intervention I mean we're, we're a tiny little island with very little space um, and, and all that space is used every inch of that space is used whether it be for recreation construction um, you know or just amenity area it's 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 all used uh, and and abused in cases so actually up on the moors here where we've got some some good expanses of ground that are well maintained it really is the the last little resort for them here in the uk yeah i'm i'm um so i'm i'm slightly involved with the ngo with a part of the hen harry recovery plan which oh, is, uh, yeah which is a, an action plan that's going on supported by all the Moreland groups, Moreland Association, NGO, NFU, CLA, um, and run by Natural England. And it's a six-point plan, it involves various things. Some of, it's, um, some of it involves um, brood relocation. So if, uh, if a grouse moor, this, this isn't my set of expertise on it, if a grouse moor has the volume of hen harriers that grouse moor can sustain goes over a, a threshold, those birds can be relocated to another grouse moor. And other grass moors are accepting those birds. That, that's something that's happening. Brood management. The other thing they're looking at is a relocation and a reintroduction. Well, they're calling it reintroduction, but it's actually a further introduction of hen harriers into Wiltshire, which is where I'm involved um, on Salisbury Plain. Just like Albert said, Salisbury Plain is a vast expanse of nothing. Uh, one of the only bits of um, southern England that is like that, and it's 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 massive. It's almost a quarter of the entire county of Wiltshire. Is sort of plain. It's great because if you go on some bits, you get blown up. So for wildlife, there's quite good areas there where people don't go on. So they they designated it's literally around stones, around Stonehenge. They designated this area where they're going to try and release some hen harriers into um, rough grassland, which they like. Becky said, you know, they're very similar to a barn house. They like the rough grassland. Lots of voles on sort of plain and lots of agriculture. So the idea is that these hen harriers, like the European ones, will be impregnate, impregnated onto agricultural land. And they should and filter out from there. Yeah, not heather. So, so that's why Exeter and Dartmoor were discounted, because of the heather content, very similar to the uplands. So this project's really, really interesting. And um, one of the reasons- had that started going for well, No, it should have started this year, but there's been, the largest conservation charity in the UK have tried to stop the Natural England um, getting the hen harriers eggs and chicks they need from the continent of Europe. Um, because this particular charity says the only reason there aren't hen harriers is because of persecution. It's nothing to do with construction, lack of land, lack of food, etc. Um, despite the fact they don't have any on their reserves either, they don't know on their reserves. So but, so, so they're currently trying to stop this this reintroduction program in southern England by going to the Spanish and the French authorities and saying, "Don't give them the birds, because these things have got a high chance of being 
uh, persecuted. Um, now, the, the really interesting thing with the with the with the reintroduction down in this part of the world is you need to get stakeholder engagement. So Natural England went to every shoot in that part of Wiltshire, which is almost exclusively partridge. Right, that that part is the partridge country. Um, similar size to a grouse. Great for great for hen herrings to eat. You know, it's ideal. It's ideal for them. Every gamekeeper, and these are some big commercial shoots as well. Every gamekeeper and landowner has positively reacted to this and have given an open door policy to Natural England to come tracking on their estates whenever they want to to have a you know the doors are open, guys. We want to be involved in this. We want to help. We want to help this project. So it's quite interesting that the reason it's faltering is because a, a conservation body is trying to stop it. Wow, pretty dark when you put it like that, isn't it? Well, you, you, you've got to wonder. The, you've got to think about what the motivation behind it is. What? Why don't uh, you want it? membership sales? Yeah, so could be. I, I mean, Albert, you might know what's happening with the or John. What's happening? Sorry, I'm taking over the interview here. Johnny, just sit you back. Crack on, mate. You crack on. Um, what's <laughs> what? What's happening with the brood management? Because there was an issue there, and I I tend to keep John things and deal with that. So there was an issue. Someone was objecting to brood management as well, weren't they? Yeah. Well, again, the the biggest uh, bird charity are objecting to that to to brood management. Um, you know, and brood management is if there's two harriers in close proximity, the landowner can can have apply for a license to Natural England to move one of those onto another site. And there's, there's a lot of uplanders, a hell of a lot of upland estates that have said, yeah, we, we'll gladly take them. And, um, but again, it's been um, sabotaged by a certain bird charity, shall we say. These certain um, charity. Yeah, and it's, 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 you know, it's just down to membership. Um, it's they're using it as a as a PR drive. Yes, and it is it's a huge one. Obviously, it's a huge one. It's a nice and easy easy thing to use. Um, yeah, invested a lot of money into that PR drive. Um, on on which note, let's move on to another species that is not of nation concern, but is something that is used as a PR drive against shooting, which is the grey partridge. Can you? spell out what the situation is with grey partridge or Hungarian partridge or English partridge in the UK? Um, so the the English partridge in the UK is um, well uh, to the to, to me especially uh, of great conservation concern um, it's a bird which is associated with um, with the shooting community in the UK since uh, since since its beginnings really uh, unfortunately um, due to modern agricultural practices and um, uh, you know increased human intervention sort of with uh, with infrastructure and things the, uh, the English partridge is really suffering um, there's quite a few um, systems in place to try and help the reintroduction um, and to help the success or of the English partridge, but um, unfortunately, we just we need to get a few more people just trying to sort of do their bit, really. So, when did this uh, decline start? So, the 50s 
the 1950s were were a sort of a big drop. Obviously, after after World War Two, um, there was a a fair drop in in keepered ground, um, and then the the need for for intensive agriculture heightened. Um, so we were using a lot more pesticides. Um, we were taking out a lot of hedgerows um, to, to to create bigger, more efficient farming. Um, and that had a, a massive impact because a lot of habitat for the uh, for the nesting pairs, and like I say, the insecticides really were um, were killing off a lot of the uh, insects that weren't necessarily harmful to the crop, um, but were vital for the the food source for the uh, for the young English it, partridge. You go from something like naught percent to ninety percent pesticide use on crops over fifteen twenty years or something. It was obscene. Yes. Yeah, it is yeah, it was a sharp rise, which which really had a, a massive impact very quickly, um, and so so you know some species may have adapted if if given a, a longer period of time. But unfortunately, because it was so short and sharp, <coughs> um, there was there was no way of adapting and things. So uh, a lot of the population did die out, um, and you know that's that's across the UK. That's not anywhere in particular, um, but in the in the past sort of. 10 to 15 years there's been a, a lot of people putting a lot of money and a lot of time and effort into um trying to recreate some better habitats um, planting hedgerows and things uh, and reducing pesticide use um so you know there there is a glimmer of hope for them i don't think we'll ever be able to um see them in the sort of former glory in the former numbers because unfortunately um with the size of the population we do need um quite a lot of this agricultural ground and it needs to be as productive as possible um but what we're, we're trying to do is any ground that is suitable any ground that we can sort of um spare if you like we're we're trying to sort of do a big push and um and help increase the uh the numbers so sorry john they're quite a well-researched bird as well um, in terms of how to get them back, it's it's a uh, it, it seems really obvious, but it's the, the game conservative come up with the term the three-legged stool. I think it's pops. The game conservative done a lot of the research on on grey partridge, and it's it's Albert's you know said it all. Habitat, you've got to get the habitat right. It's not actually that hard. They don't require that, that much. They're they're a they're a lowland farm bird essentially. So once you've got your hedgerows and your beetle banks and your, your insects for the young, you've got the habitat right. Um, then you've got to provide them food, but we can do that in a hopper. You know, so like a, a peasant keeper would, that's not that difficult. But the key, which again, Salisbury Plain was the place this was all discovered. The key is predator control, which Albert would have been on, on the moors will be far more used to that than some low ground keepers who set a few traps for a few squirrels. And I've, I've been looking up a few things by just doing moderate predator control on Salisbury Plain. Within the year one, they managed to increase the number of prey partridges by 25%. It's a quarter in year one, you know, and it, it was it was predominantly predator control. They then they saw their two sites and they did predator control on site A, nothing on site B but feeding and habitat. Uh, the ones on site B with the predator control dropped by about 40%. The ones on site A climbed by 25% due to the surplus in two years. And then after two, three years, they switched the two sites over and you had exactly the same happen. 
on the two sites, other there was a larger decline on the keeper sites after keepering had been removed than before keepering, obviously because there's an influx of predators. Yeah. Yeah. Predation's key. Predation's key to this. How do we naturalise predator control to the human population of England? Like, how do we how do we educate the people that it's just a thing that happens? We send we send Becky out to more places <laughs> to talk to more people. <laughs> I think this. I think I think we've got to get out to more mainstream. I think that's that's the key, and yeah. it's, it's 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 going to places like Country Fire Live, where you know the general public are there that don't don't shoot. But they enjoy and they love the countryside, and and they're really open to to seeing both sides and coming going away with a real balanced view of what we do. They might not agree with it, as in they don't want to go and set a trap themselves. But the number of people I've spoke to at those events that have, have, have shook my hand at the end of a you know a 10, 15, 20 minute conversation, and they've said, "I didn't realise that that, but I, I really do understand it." It's something I don't want to do, but you've got to keep doing it because it's really important for these birds, you know. And it's not just the game birds, um, and, and you know, there's a there's a big similarity between the red grouse and the grey partridge because they both rely on that predator control, that active predator control, to 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 help them survive. And the spin-off benefits of doing that active predator control is fantastic for our red-listed birds. Which are really thriving in the uplands, you know, curlew, um, golden plover, lapwing. They're doing remarkable. They're booking the trend in the uplands to what they are nationally across the UK. Are grey partridge as much as grouse? Sorry, say that again. Are grey partridge worth as much as a grouse? Just shoot. Right. Yes. So in terms of conservation, any any species that is on the edge is worth as much as any other species. So in, in, this is my opinion, a grey partridge is worth as much as a red grouse. If you're talking about a sporting quarry uh, and you're talking about the actual shootability of it. I don't I don't know, know, a hand in their pocket and paying £180 a brace for grey partridge. You, yeah, you try and buy grey partridge shooters. Exist. You can't. It's not there. So it's, it's it's economies of scale. If you want to buy it, you've got to pay for it. So it's if, if something's not available, it's worth a lot more money. It's, that's why grouse are expensive. Grey partridge shooting is expensive. It's not cheap to go buy wild grey partridge. Gen genuine. It's also not available. It tends to be private landowners, farmers, shooting syndicates who want it for themselves. That's and the very old estates or new estates that have invested too much money to give it away to anybody it, apart from it, themselves. Exactly, exactly. It's more of a, it's more of a passion than a, than a commodity. But if you were to look in, and a few years ago, I did a bit of a project on this, well, a few years ago, 15 years ago, when I worked in the sporting agent, we, we, we did a project on the, on the price of um, grouse and, and potential grey partridge shooting. To produce grey partridge in the numbers to make it economically viable to do it commercially, so such like a grass moor, you would have to remove so much productive arable land out of commercial production, you would have to charge more for a partridge than a grouse because moorland's quite good for putting sheep on and grouse on and a lot good for anything else, but a, a chalk downland that you can grow milling barley on. Back, back then it was 100, 195 pound a ton. You've got to take that out of production to do it. So, so in terms of what 
you can't just look at the bird, you've got to look at the bigger economic picture and the impact cost of producing it. So, so it, I think that's a whole hour for its own job. Yeah, indeed, indeed. I would, say, you know, I, I, I would say, in terms of what you would have to remove from the income of the estate, you would probably have to charge more money to shoot a driven grey partridge game than a ground game. All right, here's the big question. To each of you individually, would you pay it? Uh, I would, because I can hit partridge and I can't hit ground. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'd pay anything if it was going towards the the upkeep and the survival of that bird. You know, that's that's what it's down to, and that's what a lot of people can't understand about shooting, how much money is generated to shoot a bird, which then goes back into that conservation into paying for that land management uh which helps everything go on so so in answer to your question yeah definitely you pay yeah, a, a thousand that to go and shoot a 60 bird day yeah that i was gonna say that doesn't that doesn't necessarily necessarily mean i could afford to do it but uh, <laughs> 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 and, uh, yeah uh but as a as, as a theory yes I, I i would pay that money to uh to, to do it because because i know what the spin-off is and how, what, what what good that money does the work that's gone into uh, getting to that position from yeah yeah Albert, yeah because i'm a poor gamekeeper <laughs> um you'd <laughs> rather be paid to look after them but uh, but no i mean for me um definitely i think um i think with the the gray partridge we've got to um if people want to, to be able to come and shoot them and do uh, and enjoy them as a sporting quarry again, I think we need to, to look at paying more for less quantity-wise um, and we need to, to appreciate where that money's going. Um, it's like, uh, like Tim was saying, to, to remove um, really sort of fertile, productive agricultural land comes at a massive cost um, to landowners and farmers and things. Um, so we, we've if we if we want to see the, the the continuation of the success of the species, we need to we need to pay a little bit more for for less really, and 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 really sort of look at where our money's going um, with regards to the conservation um, and and that sort of thing. So yeah, definitely uh, theoretically speaking, you know, if if uh, <laughs> if money was was uh, no object for me sort of thing, then yes, yeah, I would um, would definitely be investing it in that. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I definitely would. And, you know, if, if I could afford a, a nice English side beside to do it with, I'd do that too. <laughs> That's an interesting question, isn't it? I, I, I think that I would agree that it would be the better thing. However, actually making that decision to say, I am not going to shoot any red leg partridge this year. I'm not going to shoot any pheasants this year. I'm going to spend my entire budget on shooting four birds. Is a very different reality, and I think that's. There's definitely. I yeah, don't know I how I sit with that. To be honest, I don't know how I would make that decision, if the opportunity was even there. Is that an advert? John, Johnny would like to come shooting wild grey partridge. If anyone's watching this, yeah, and I'd pay for it. I, I think, I think <laughs> if the opportunity was genuinely there. I think I would pay for it because it's such a rare thing, and you can shoot pheasants pretty much whenever you like, in the grand scheme of things. Maybe. Yeah, I, I think where, where Albert is, you're in a you're in a prime 
situation there, Albert, <laughs> with the grouse moor and doing wild grey partridge. I mean, you you could actually, if you could get your boss really into it, is shoot two shoot two grouse guys and go do a wild grey partridge. Guy. You know. Yeah, and that's what a day. We're we're very lucky with, um, like you're saying. I mean, our our land use as far as agricultural value is is quite low. So we we. We're not productive agriculturally. We're we're not uh, intensively farming. All of our fields are still roughly the same size as when they were um, sort of Bronze Age fields. Um, so, so we're very very lucky with that. And obviously we've already got um, a, a successful predation control um, system in place. Um, so really we've got um, the potential to be quite successful. Um, and I mean, there's plenty of heather beetles for young English partridge chicks to be eating at the minute. <laughs> <laughs> Albert, tell me about what you have done on your ground, how long the project's been going, and what you're looking for, and how that's going to work in your head. So, it's, it all started for me as a bit of a sideline, a bit of a, um, a hobby, um, and just something that I'd, I'd really love to see the, the English back here um we we've looked back into to game books and things and it wasn't uncommon to like tim was saying do a a couple of grouse drives and finish finish on a, a little bit of a, a wild gray drive um and you know there were there was up to sort of 60 65 brace of wild english um taken on on our estate um you know it wasn't uncommon um so it's it, like I say. It started off as just a bit of a this hobby, is a bit of a thirties or something. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so now I've kind of expanded on that, um, and I've got the the support from um, from the boss, um, and uh, so this year we we've got some laying pairs, um, and hopefully, uh, hopefully the the plan is to to take a, the first sort of clutch of eggs from those pairs. Um, I'll keep collecting the eggs for a little while, set those to a side, incubate them under under our, our broody hens, uh, and then hopefully leave the um, leave the pairs to rear and hatch their own um, their own brood. So hopefully we'll sort of double up. So we'll have some some under broody hens and then some parent reared birds, um, and let's say they'll be out on. Uh, different parts of the estate where we're, we're fairly quiet and we've we've got the right sort of ground for them uh, and hopefully just give them a bit of a chance to establish. So this is a year one from zero grey partridge to hopefully a few hundred on the ground. Yeah so, so last year I just did a couple of clutches under broodies um, and, uh, and and we, we, we had them out on the estate uh, and I had a little count up um, had a little count up of what we had, what we had left, um, and we were still well behold below the threshold um, acreage-wise. So we've just, this is why we've decided to, to sort of hatch some more broods off uh, and try and introduce them that way. Um, uh, yeah, no. So we're uh, like I say, it, it's it's a, a very early stages project. I am by no means any sort of an oracle on the English partridge. It is purely just a, a bit of a passion of mine um, and something I'd like to sort of try and help out in any way uh, that I can. Um, and, and equally, uh, a little bit of a plea, if anybody's got any tips and tricks or anything like that, 
you know, I'm all ears. So, uh, you know, it, it's a it's a big learning curve for me. Um, and hopefully, um, we just keep developing the knowledge and things. Uh, and that's and try and have them uh, try and have a, a few pairs, a few wild pairs back. Do you think more people should be doing what you're doing and trying to establish a small English population alongside their more commercial aspects of a shoot? I think if if um, if they can sustain that, if they can set a bit of time aside, and I say a bit of time loosely, uh, it's actually taking many hours of blood, sweat, and tears um, setting it up and doing. But you know, if if people could just do a tiny little uh, amount of of work that would improve uh, a small area of habitat um, uh, and a, a smaller area of predation control. Anything they can do to contribute really would help. Um, and I suppose it's just a domino effect. If, if we could all just do a little bit in the ideal world, um, then yeah, definitely, um, the more the merrier. Johnny, this, these are the sort of stories we need to get out more into the wider world. This is, this is actual conservation in action. This isn't people talking about it. This isn't people saying, well, if we did this, if we did that, if we could, this is uh, Albert's head keeper giving the free range. This is the owner giving you the money to do it. And this is, this is a young keeper who's got loads of other work to do, who's taken this on in addition to his work. This, this is, this is these are all extra. This is all above and beyond what's required. This is what I would call proper conservation in action. And, and this is something that can be done on a DIY lowland shoot in Hampshire. It, it can be done in a, in a, you know, a moderate-sized cinder club in, in the Warwickshire. And it can be done on a, on a grass moor in Yorkshire. You know, this is, this is the stuff gamekeepers take upon themselves because they love the countryside. And the landowners do as well. Yeah. There is a benefit. They might get to shoot a great partridge. But for, for, for from my sort of point of view, um, it's been a massive, massive help. I mean, uh, my boss and landowner, and you know, everybody's been so supportive because they're all so passionate about um, bringing this this iconic little bird back. You know, and and the 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 sporting side of it hasn't really um, hasn't really crossed their mind yet. You know, we, we're not looking at trying to introduce it to to be a commercially viable uh, species we we just want to see them back where they should be um and like i say to, to have the support from all of, all of my peers all my um the bosses and landowners and things has been fantastic um and it's great to see uh, just a, a small little um community and stuff pulling together to really do everything they can to assist me assist the, the partridge so yeah i mean it is a big ask, but you know, if 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 everybody or as many people as possible just do their little bit for conservation, um, you know, just like Tim was saying, just that little extra, um, that little extra piece, then uh, you know, we we could have a, a massive ripple effect. Well, that's a that's a spin-off as well. Going back to all the red-listed birds, it's you know, it's not just about the partridge. It's not just about pheasants and everything. It's it's this is about everything and and all keepers for the length and breadth of the of the uk i've got that passion you know it's it's not just about game birds i know it, the great partridge is a game bird but they're, they're really passionate i got i got i got sent a video last night um from a keeper in the yorkshire dales 
who watched a, um, a couple of carrion crows take three um, curlew chicks. So, and he was devastated. He was absolutely devastated that he couldn't get across quick enough. And he was running with, with the camera going. And it was too, by the time he got there, it was too late. And he was absolutely devastated that he couldn't help. Uh, and these birds had, had, had predated this curlew nest. You know, so that passion is there in keepers. It's not just about game birds and shooting. It's about the whole environment. And I think that's something that we really do need to, to get across better uh, you know is is that passion that all these lads have and, and girls have no i would um i would agree with you a lot i was gonna say albert if there's any other chance of us uh pointing the camera at you and coming and sort of see doing a physical look at what you're doing that would be great but obviously privacy is a one thing on a stage so we'll still uh spot on see what your bosses say <laughs> guys um is there anything anybody would like to conclude with <laughs> um, I think I think the the one thing we'd like to say is, as of today, we said earlier on, you can go shooting and fishing again. So take the opportunity, but do it safely. Take hand sanitizer, take soap, take water with you. Um, it doesn't mean the threat's over. What it means is there's going to be some social uh, movement allowed. So. I think as shooters, we need to be responsible in that and we need to take the opportunity we've got, luckily, because we are allowed into the countryside, we're, we're in a very privileged position to be able to do that. So I think we need to go shooting, go back to it, don't abuse what you're allowed to do, don't try and push the limits to it because that would look very bad, um, enjoy it. And come October, I think, Things will be, if we stick to the rules, things will be an awful lot better. And I've said it each time we video, we'll be forgetting that we were sitting in our rooms talking to you or in, a, in your car, you two. Um, you know, it, I, I, think, I think go out, enjoy it, don't abuse it. And think sensibly, if you're going to go deer stalking, if you, if you chew it, take it home to eat it in a minute, brilliant. But you've got to remember all the pubs and restaurants are closed and the thing is there's no outlet. So just be, just bear that in mind. Anyone else? No, for me, it's just mirroring what, what Tim said, really. Um, just go out there, enjoy it and be safe. Thank you, uh, thank you very much for all the hard work that you do. Uh, I'm sure everyone listening would emulate that. And thank you very much for coming on. Albert, the same to you. And of course, same to you, Tim and John. Guys, <laughs> uh, thank yeah. you very much for coming on. Thanks, thanks, for thank you. And tight lines, Tim. Yeah.